the Bush Telegraph had proved its worth. I'd been informed by word of mouth that they had opened up tracks in national parks, if only for day trips and only for those Tasmanians who live within 30 kilometres of one. Fortunately for me, I live with an enormous expanse of national park at my back door, infinite routes to mountainous country which has been beckoning me these past weeks as I've sat at home, going nowhere much. In my shack, this train carriage I'm renting on a family's block beneath the highlands of Tasmania. A few facts. Nearly 50% of this island is reserved land, much of it national park. Almost half of that again is World Heritage Area. Which is just to say that all in all, this place has got a lot of bloody nice landscapes in which to walk, and on the Monday when it all opened up again, I beat the rangers to the trailhead. The signage still said closed and declaimed the hateful code of COVID-19, but I'd heard the report and taken it at its word, and so slammed shut my car doors and skipped up the road towards the nearest mountain. I scared a hawk off the riverbanks. It flapped into a wild flurry of dappled feathers stuck in the air like a suspended shipwreck. Where the remnant tree trunks had once been sawn by foresters, they now posed with ferns sticking out like fascinators. They were all embossed with clumps of moss, the whole rainforest floor glittering and green. On some trunks, the moss was so thick it felt like holding a handful of raw steak. And the rectangular boulders along the creek were like Indian sweetmeats steeped in green food dye. The sassafras was as fragrant as a Persian salon. And there were blue mushrooms looking like so many talismans to ward off the evil eye. And that big outcrop of rock that I was hiking towards reminded me of a ruined castle I'd once visited in Turkey's Kutchkar Mountains. This was an adventure into a provocative and poetic landscape, as exotic as anywhere I've travelled in all my years. A land of ferns and cairns, fungi and scree. There were conifers soaking up the chilled humidity, species that only exist in Tassie. Only in the highest, coldest, wettest places, relict species from eons ago. Plants that bear special memories of ice ages as if they were the golden days. Pencil pines and king billies that are fearful of warming weather. They wore copper diadems, heavily laden with cones, following a mysterious impulse that scientists don't fully understand. The simultaneous production of seed that happens... Every so often, kind of whenever the trees feel like it, it seems. But this was just one expression of a rare variety of life. The forest, a republic of infinite ways of being. Millions of creatures moving in slow choreography. The latest moment in the midst of millennia in which tiny adjustments have been made. In a milieu of improvisations to seasons and intrusions... Responses to secret stimuli. And in return, prompting a whole set of secrets of their own. Offering paths and stories in which we might well entwine ourselves. 
and indeed I did last Monday, became implicit in the forest. One more critter under the canopy. It is a strange thing to hike upstream against the current, contrary to gravity. To a high point, a crest of rock from which all waters must recede. I'd walked up to the headwaters of the creek, to its spontaneous opening moves, onto a bog which gives birth to a series of rippling streams that duck in and out of view, plonking themselves underground at times, the creek working its way downhill through spongy peat in a fairly chaotic arrangement which hydrographers who obviously dabble in poetry as well, describe as deranged drainage. The artistry of a juvenile creek system which doesn't settle itself until it hits a bed of boulders and then starts pouring evenly off the mountainside. But whatever the case, it was going away from me as I scrambled up to the uppermost point, to the mountain peak, that pinprick of longitude and latitude on an island at the bottom of the world. Meanwhile, the little creek drifted away, racing to meet up with the nearest river, to pour out into the ocean, to find oblivion, in evaporation or circulation, to wander around the world or up into the atmosphere, socialites wanting to mingle with distant droplets of water, to join up with an ever-moving circle of stories, nourishing so many other creatures along the way. All of this happening behind my back as I crouched on the summit of this mountain, at the top of that bushwalking track, putting my hand into a packet of lollies that looked all together like the day's random collection of fungi. The train carriage has only simple services. Running water, a drop toilet, a two-burner gas stovetop cooker, a fireplace. There's no electricity and pretty shonky phone reception. And I don't have a smartphone anyway, so no internet. In that respect, it's a little red cloister. 
a dwelling place for a solitary person and his thoughts. The ingredients he has, a few necessary implements, the essence of his life. But it would be misleading to say that I'm without these additional things altogether. Up the gravel track there's a house with a family in it, and they have mod cons. They watch movies, they do online yoga, they can roast vegetables. The house is, however, entirely surrounded by a gang of Tasmania's most ferocious animal, the native hen. And so every time I wander up that way I suspect that I'm going to be ambushed. It's like walking up a back alley in New York City. I try not to pass that way too often then. But it's there and very generously that family will let me charge my computer and send off my nude self-portraits and so on. Actually with the library closed it's only thanks to them that you're able to hear the recordings of these stories. For better or for worse, you might think. Whatever the case, it suits me very well to have limits on when and how I connect to the internet. I don't know about you, but it feels for me like it's all too easy to languish in virtual space. And although it's a many-splendid place, I don't feel like I have any real need to live straddling full-time two very intricate realms. The internet and the bush. For now, at least, I prefer to observe the interactions of the forest around me rather than the shouting matches between countless unlistening interlocutors online. I think it's pretty outdated by now, but I like the metaphor of the world wide web. The myriad fine filaments that spread between individuals. A tangle of shimmering thread down which our movements quiver towards one another no matter how far away we each might be. I picture a map of the world with transparent silver gossamers laid out over it. A cobweb over the continents. But the metaphor of the web then suggests to me that there is a predator waiting somewhere. Some villain who has laid out this mercurial trap and is waiting to feed on us. That we're all like gnats who have so easily gotten stuck in this silken prison and the more we wriggle, the more confined we'll become. But that couldn't be right. Could it? Most of us these days have, have these private chat rooms with our mates. And there the communication comes and fits and starts. It bursts, spurts, splutters and blurts. It bubbles up before us suddenly. Sentences that come effervescent and as if ex nihilo. For example, this past week a friend of mine wrote from Melbourne, answering a question that I, I posed to her a year ago, and then responding to something else altogether, some other impulse somewhere far from me. She said she wanted to tell me about a room, a room in her mind, rather different from the dorm she keeps in Melbourne, with an architectural form she's dreamed up herself, half indoors and half outdoors, a series of corridors with maps tacked up, bookcases full to overflowing, but little more than a mattress on the floor. And it seems that her halls were all built on stilts over 
a backwater where herons perched in bamboo and kingfishers placidly waited in multicoloured outfits in the palms. When I met her many years ago, this friend of mine had pretended to be much older than she was. And she was practically already a professional in her field, a practising scientist at the age of 15. It was as if family expectations had compressed the years, forced her to race through them. But now it was as though childhood was catching up to her. And the old patterns from her younger years were returning, impressions that swirled through her mind. She wanted to play, to taste flowers and leaves in the forest, smell of wood smoke, step barefoot through clay to the river, perhaps wearing her sari, but still wading straight into the coldest, purling stream she could find, entering its ripples, letting the patterns merge. She told me that for a while she'd hoped that the internet might be the series of interconnected hallways and kaleidoscopic patterns that she'd missed in childhood. Online, she'd tried to find those rare orchids, the hybrids, some unique adaptations. She was trying to participate in the Earth's dreams while she held down a steady job. But what she really wanted was to open herself up to other living creatures, to find the channel to understand their means of communications. This was bound to happen eventually, she said. When they taught me to be a scientist, they also taught me to be a philosopher. She would hold up every object in her mind as if it was a diamond. And the final spontaneous sentence she sent the other day was an invitation for herself to visit my train carriage someday in the distant future with a plan to watch the skinks, to look closely at them, to study every facet of their scintillating bodies, or simply stand with their shoes off in the forest, feeling for connectivity with the soles of her feet. On the Greek island of Ikaria, we went skipping across the rocks, Nikos and Yanis and me, towards a lighthouse on the island's southwestern corner. The whole landmass was a great mineral spine that rose steeply out of the blue sea. And for some nights and, and days, we'd been drinking the local wine, which seemed to have been wrung out of the soil itself rather than any fruit heard someone say we'd been drinking volcano blood. And now we slithered down a slate slope to see what stories the lighthouse might hold. I think the last thing that we expected was to find someone in there. But when we broke in, there was a bloke sitting at the table, calmly reading. 
He greeted us with neither enthusiasm or annoyance. We noted that he'd stubbed his cigarette in an ashtray bearing the logo of a French airline. Yes, he said. Washed up after that flight crashed here, plummeted like Icarus into the Aegean. It was a tragedy we'd never heard about. And we each asked a question about it. But then the lighthouse keeper grinned. All right, all right, he said. I stole it from an airport lounge. We stayed for coffee, talked for an hour, I suppose, and then we clambered back up to the car. As we scrambled up to the road, Nikos turned around and asked breathlessly if we'd seen what the lighthouse keeper had been reading. Garcia Marquez, 100 Years of Solitude. El Arre. Not so far away was the island of Patmos, where one of the world's first Christians, a chap called John, had curled up in a cave two millennia ago. He'd probably been banished by the Roman state for his support of a certain insurrectionist. Instead of feeling sorry for himself, he wrote out his guess at how the apocalypse might look, which I suppose most of us have done in our confinement these past weeks too. His vision of the end of the world was a letter that he planned to send out somehow to the churches of Western Asia, just so that they knew. To manuscript that reads as stream of consciousness as anything written by Kerouac. But for him the letter was a matter of connecting with congregations elsewhere, fuelled by faith, not amphetamines, even if it was the vivid script of a fevered nightmare a cyclone of precious stones and wild beasts in which everyone, even the heads of government and military forces, the rich and mighty as well as slaves and the poor, are forced into hiding, begging the mountains to fall upon them. John's message was a warning, saying that a dark day was coming, but upon re-reading it I suspect that he was maybe trying to share his loneliness. In his treatise, he describes an ominous star that appears in the end times, which hovers over us all as a curse whilst everyone endures the wrath of heaven and earth. John calls his star of doom Wormwood, which seems a kind of weird allegory, and no theologian, as far as I know, has really gotten to the bottom of it. Perhaps it was a star he'd seen from his cave, growing brighter at a certain point in its orbit, and so he imagined it as a shoot growing into a sapling, turning into a bitter shrub that would enshroud the earth, an omen for an acrimonious world. Something was growing upside down out of the sky, branches and foliage reaching down towards us, an idiosyncratic forest starting up with its roots in the heavens. Whatever it was, it was a fate that everyone would share in. Not just the exile on his rocky isle, embittered and alone. Social distancing is a fad that caught me by surprise, even if the idea within it has been familiar enough to me for a while. But as the restrictions on our social lives start to lift around the world, I, I wonder if it's all happened too swiftly for us to actually 
understand the connections that we've kept, even in solitude. I suppose I'm finding that I feel underprepared if things are indeed going back to normal. I'm not ready to reintegrate into society. I've quite enjoyed this stint alone. I've let myself go deeper into my mind and enjoyed the uninterrupted company of my imagination, truly. And I'm only a little concerned that I might end up like John. My train carriage, a replacement for his cave. Coming up with metaphors that no one will understand, even if they think about it for 2,000 years. A couple of years ago, I met a performance artist from Punta Arenas in the Chilean part of Patagonia who was roaming Tasmania looking for a forest where she could create a work of art with her body in the bush. She was seeking out trees of a certain ancestry, those whose cousins might be found in her part of the world, trees whose crucial moments of evolution came when the Southern Hemisphere's countries were conjoined in a supercontinent called Gondwanaland. Trees whose genetic identity was mostly formed when Tasmania and Patagonia were still rubbing shoulders. There's a good number of genera that we share, similar species separated by nothing more than uh, just the Southern Ocean, really, and however many million years since the last crusts of land were sundered, as tectonic plates dragged us apart and created a distance that wouldn't be crossed until very, very recently. But she had done it. Her name was Macarena. And uh, we were at the Royal Oak Hotel and we drank and danced and I spoke terrible Spanish and later we watched a full moon and an ad for Bogue's beer, both hovering dangerously over the North Esk River. The next day she went west and found herself a rainforest dominated by Nothophagus, the genus that she knew from her own mountains. And she wrapped herself in yellow tape and made a piece of art from this. And we plotted out an intercontinental project we might invent together, but as so often happens with art projects, our ambitions didn't match our funding and our transoceanic artwork is yet to come to exist. It now strikes me that perhaps I'll never see Macarena again. But just as she has entered forests with connections across vast distances, so we retain a friendship across space and time.
I emailed her just last week. And these days, in the forest all around me, I've found something else that mediates between faraway places. A fungus known here only by its Latin name, which I'll pronounce with a Spanish lilt to give it a romantic effect, Galerina Patagonica. A golden-brown mushroom that bends out of gaps in tree trunks and pokes its helmet head from corners and divots in the dirt, shining in retro colours like an antiquated object. Op shop bric-a-brac. I am not a mycologist, and anything I might say about how mushrooms work must be taken with a grain of salt, with the natural distrust that the public usually has for poetry. But beneath the surface of the earth, in any healthy soil, as far as I can tell, there is a mass of invisible filaments, like silken strands, fibres that flex and shake, lines of communication, a network for the transfer of information, for secret signals between the forest's living entities. This mycelium, its threads sprawling out through the earth, these are the most real roots of woods and worlds. Forget your fibre optic cables. I reckon here is where the truest communion happens between beings. Now let's go back to the Jurassic period, a significant moment in the history of Tasmania's formation. It's around 180 million years ago and Gondwana land is gradually breaking up. As land masses pull apart, a hot and viscous liquid spurts up in fat jets into the gaps created beneath the surface of the earth. This lava will cool to rock and become Kunanyi's organ pipes, the massif of Ben Lomond, Mount Ossa's craggy peaks. Tasmania is beginning the long, slow process of becoming an island. What will be Patagonia, Antarctica, southern Africa, New Zealand, southern India, they'll take with them a whole lot of species we'll never see again. And what's left behind, most of it's going to change over these generations, adjusting to slow alterations in climate and atmosphere, as the land their roots are built into slips and slides around the Earth's southern parts. In millions of years there will come a strange animal, which has evolved an uncanny talent, a talent which on paper has no value at all, an instinct for trying to understand its place in the universe, for learning and considering the future and pondering its past. This animal will notice similarities between Patagonian and Kiwi and Tasmanian species and at last conjecture that once these lands were side by side, that this all shares a common ancestry. And shortly after that evolution, in a Launceston pub, I will meet Macarena, and we will stand each other pints and talk about our landscapes, their folklore, and our love for it all. And we will reflect on the way our country's closeness was sundered, and drunk, and emotional. I will breathe a Latin binomial, inflected as if it's Spanish and slurred as if we left the pub after closing time. Galarina Patagonica. And Macarena will respond, Think of the mycelia. Imagine the delicate web of hyphae pulling and stretching as the continents drifted apart. 
silently screeching in the slow choreography of unspeakable chaos. Strands snapped. Mycelian speech severed, the fungus's language muted. Some took the boat that became South America. Some went with the land that we now know as Tasmania. Don't let drunken artists and poets postulate on millions of years of evolution, right? Who knows how it really went, how it works. But Galerina Patagonica grows within 20 metres of where I sleep. And like 15,000 kilometres away as well. So is there any wonder we live with a general yearning and melancholy? With all that we've left behind? The memory of separation written into the networks that speak beneath our feet and give life to the bush around us? And likewise, is it any wonder that we have that other feeling that's also hard to explain? The other side of the coin. That everything's a bloody miracle. And that maybe we're not so separated after all. And these feelings are born from brains as mysterious as mycelia. Our nerves lack these hyphae. Thus the urge to make it permanent, perhaps. To turn all this into art. If only you could get the funding. I don't remember where I heard this story, but I suppose it must have stood out to me. It was of a family somewhere in Russia, some ethnic or religious minority, I suppose, who went into hiding as a result of some uprising in the middle of the 20th century. They found themselves a retreat somewhere in the vast taiga forest, built a cabin, lived off the land and the lakes. This family, with their beliefs, their old stories, in a sort of equilibrium with the air, the earth, the stars. And then they noticed the stars moving, dislodging themselves in the night and migrating, strangely, in oblique angles, suddenly restless, altering their orbit. It must have been a worrying sign, as fearsome as wormwood. These satellites. Sometimes I sleep out and watch them move studiously across the sky, looking like administrators in their refusing to budge from their line while the shooting stars shear off fast and brilliant, artists of astronomical energy. In an emergency once, I used a sat phone and called for help. Now there's a process as enigmatic as prayer. These silent transmissions we nowadays send to heaven, 
The same can be said about phone reception. Waves sometimes come wafting across the train carriage, like faint light or a shape-shifting shadow with its own free will that chooses to cast its spell here and there. A source of strange power that's come to control our lives and in such a short time. What sort of sorcery is this? Yet it peters out when I wander up onto the plateau behind my train carriage. I think of that place as a land like some kingdom of the past, Scythia or Elam, somewhere that different rules apply. The land of no network coverage. That's the phrase that my pocket phone holds on its screen, as if it's pleading for me to rectify the situation. And so I say, yes, yes, phone, I'll fix the problem. And I turn it off and turn my attention to the myriad connections with which I have to think with a little more imagination to work out what we have in common, to meet with rock, wood, water, wind, to try out expressions in the Earth's other languages, as many of them as I can. I feel akin to those old-fashioned Russians in their retreat, watching the satellites move overhead, silent and sinister. I can imagine them emerging after some decades out of the loop, with their eyes opened widely to the weirdness that we nowadays accept as normal. This is not the world we asked for. Like them, I sought a different relationship with the sky. Always thought that something else might help me establish a connection with the stars and the moon and the other planets. That Russian family had developed their own methods for bridging these enormous distances, a way of entering the unknown that wasn't Wikipedia. I'm sure if they came out of their forest now, they'd find their beliefs made pretty well redundant. And like them, I wonder if I've been left behind. Sometimes my own fibres of connection with others seem like they're slowly being yanked and plucked out. But other times, I have my feet on the ground. And the peat beneath me rumbles like a living fossil. And the soil carries the crystals of millions of years of memories. And there are the roots of trees that hold my island aloft and keep it alive. There is mycelia that quivers with communication, expressions more poetic and diverse than anything I've come up with yet. The stone that forms the foundation myth of stories that take me backwards far beyond human existence. And I kneel down on a mattress of coral fern and drink from a creek that runs downhill and embraces the whole world. There's no network coverage 
but as scientists as far back as Darwin have suggested, everything's netted together. Everything's connected, caught in an infinite trammel of invisible mesh, or in an ever-ramifying tree with roots that reach to the core of life itself. This offline kingdom, like Scythia, or like that tiny family commune in Siberia, like every empire and establishment, it will presumably be overrun. I fear that already its glory days are done. Maybe I visit its last bastions now, and it will soon be gone. But life will carry on even if it doesn't look exactly like I hope it would. There will still be that unconquerable set of interactions between every living being, an electronic system that truly keeps the world ticking. And if we're still around, I'm sure we'll find plenty to explore, new neighbourhoods to investigate, new ecosystems for scientists to interpret, because most of what exists around us, we don't understand. There is always more to learn about where we are. And the creek goes underground. It comes back up. It becomes a ravine that goes through the constellations of the forest. And reminds me yet again that there are any number of ways that we might take that life makes the most remarkable shapes. That living beings have a knack that we will try anything to make it all work. That we too might adapt. Give another way of being a crack. Like an animal, I slurp some more water out of that neat little rivulet that runs through the peat and heath and out down a shoot of dolerite, urgently, as if it's addicted to salt. I will wait up here at the source, seeing it in some way as a symbol of things lost, of the past. But there is a sense that streams return to us. The creek is later reincarnated as rainfall which makes it hard to recognise, but I'll reunite with it. Somewhere. Sometime. So stories come back to you. And connections once severed can be reformed.